Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We love having you here, and it's our mission to bring you all the latest and greatest tips, skills, and know-how to make you the best that you can be. We know that you have it in you, and we're going to show you how. Now, now, let's get started. Well, hi again, everybody, and welcome back to Anti-Bullying 101. This podcast is designed to create awareness about the bullying epidemic and provide teachers, administrators, parents, and even students information about the dangers of bullying and why we have to take a comprehensive approach when dealing with the problem. My name is Jim Burns. I'm your host. I'm a retired high school administrator with over 40 years of experience in education. Currently, I'm a college instructor, and I've designed the Bullyproof Classroom, a graduate course that provides my students with permanent help, not temporary relief, as they battle the bullying epidemic. Today, we're going to be talking about why authority always wins. You know, as a young boy, I always had a fear of authority. I don't mean the police. I mean other adults other than my parents. There was always some authority figure who was correcting me in the community or in school. And, you know, my father was a bar owner. And, you know, the bar was pretty popular and we were in a very small town you know, and I was well known in the town, and I knew a lot of adults because they all came into my father's bar. So if I was involved in some type of stupid behavior on one side of town, my dad or my mom found out about it. And through the grapevine, very quickly, you know, I got myself in a jam. Well, my parents never question the guy or the gal who told them about my behavior. Now, you got to remember, the person that told my father about my behavior was probably one of my father's customers. And it didn't matter at all whether or not the person was a drunk or not. They never questioned the adult. Didn't matter. I always got questioned. They'd always question me because I was the kid and they believed the adult. It always seemed like I was found out one way or another. And and that's something that we've lost in our culture today. The idea that the adult is right. Now, I'm not saying all adults are right. And I'm not saying all kids are wrong. But what I am saying is 
There is a pecking order that comes with age. And in reality, we have to make sure that when a kid tells us something or when a kid tries to get out of something, they're always leaving something out. And there's probably plenty of truth to what the adult is telling either a parent or another teacher or the administration. That's the problem we have in schools today because some of the parents have grown physically but not emotionally. And they come in and argue like a kid for their kid. And we've talked about this lots of times. The other thing that never failed was if I was told not to do something and I disobeyed, something bad always happened. It always happened as a result of me not listening. I don't mean like getting yelled at by my father. I mean something like really bad would happen. That was a direct consequence of my rebellious behavior. Now, as I said, I lived in a small town. We didn't have, you know, a lot to do. My father always worked. Going to the beach or going on a vacation was kind of like something we couldn't do because that would mean the bar would have to get closed down. So we, as kids, we all waited for the summer, not because of a vacation, but because it was a time to play baseball, drink soda, hang out, and ride our bikes all over town. And I always had a pretty decent bike. It was fun to ride. But we all liked to ride each other's bikes all the time. That's what we enjoyed doing. Riding each other's bikes. I always had a, you know, a liking for someone else's bike. And they always had a liking for mine. I like to ride my friend's bikes, but for some reason, my father had a problem with that. Now, one day I was about 11. I pulled up in front of the bar. I was riding my friend Johnny's bike. And I put the brakes on with my right foot, and the bike didn't stop. It only stopped when I used my left foot. My father saw that, and he watched, and he said, Jimmy, what he called me when he was upset, I don't want you riding that bike. It doesn't have a coaster brake. I said, yeah, it does. You just have to use your left foot. He said, are you right-handed or left-handed? I said, right. He said, well, then you're always going to use your right foot to brake. And if you're on a bike that has the brake on the left side, you'll try to stop using your right foot and then you won't be able to switch feet fast enough to stop. Hmm. That made sense. Well, like all kids, I heard, but I didn't listen. And one warm summer night, my friend Johnny pulled up on his bike, and I asked him where my other friend, Izzy, was. He told me Izzy was up the block. 
and my bike was in the backyard. And I was too lazy to go get it. So, you know what I did? I asked him if I could ride his bike. And of course he said yes. I took the bike, rode up the block, saw Izzy, told Izzy to come on down. I turned around and started down the block at, at a pretty high speed. No sooner did I start than when Izzy's sister Elizabeth stepped in front of me, I slammed on the brake with my right foot, of course. The bike didn't stop. I crashed into her. And here's the bad part. I pushed her up against a brand new car that was parked on the street. Oh, one more thing that I want to share with you. The bike didn't have any rubber hand grips either. So the metal handlebars were dragged all across the car, denting and scratching the paint finish. The owner came out of the house and asked me where I lived, and I pointed down the block. He walked with me down the street, through the bar, and upstairs where my mother was sleeping on the couch, snoring, and I had to wake her up. And she was shaken to find a strange man standing in the living room. We all had to go downstairs and up the block to take a look at my artwork. I was so scared, I didn't know what to do or what to say. And I asked my mother, are you going to tell dad? And of course I knew she was going to tell my father. But I thought I'd just ask. I was thinking, isn't anybody going to help me? I didn't mean to do it. But I was told not to ride that bike. I walked into the bar and on his way in was my father's drunken customer who tried to comfort me, Denny, short for Dennis, one of my father's best customers. Denny was a four-pack a day smoker who spent all day in the bar paying my father's bills. We all knew when he was there because his, he had asthma, and that asthmatic cough just filled the place with a lot of noise and a lot of germs. And he said to me, he said, Hey, Jim, are you all right? I said in a quivering voice, Yeah. He said, Good. As long as you and the girl are all right, don't worry about anything. Then he said with all of his brunk, this, this just absolute drunken bravado, you should have told me what was going on with that guy. When he came in here, I would have thrown him the hell out. I felt like asking him if there was any room at his house where I could stay for a while. Well, you're getting the picture. When we fight authority, it always wins. Kids think that if they fight against that which is really designed to look after them, like your parents or your teachers or, what, or any other authority figure, police, they think that they're giving them a hard time when in reality they're trying to help and they're trying to use their wisdom 
to instruct us so we don't get ourselves in trouble. That's what happens. We fight it, we do what we want, and we end up getting ourselves in trouble. And this is a message I want communicated to children and students, that you can't fight it. Ultimately, something will happen. I crawled upstairs and went to bed, and I got up early the next morning. And I slithered out of the house before my father woke up. I went up the street and met with Izzy, and I asked him how his sister was. And he said she was fine. And I sat there with him and talked with him about how I I knew I had to go home and deal with my dad. He said he'd go with me. I walked into the bar. My father was in the back kitchen, and I made a mad dash for the upstairs door. Izzy followed me, and as he was getting ready to close the door, a voice cried out, Hey, Israel, is Jimmy with you? There's that name again, Jimmy, when he was upset with me. I poked my head out and I said, Hi, Dad. He said, Come here. I slowly walked to the back and stood before the judgment seat of what I thought was God. And he asked me the definitive question. And it's a great question. Did I tell you not to ride the bike? That's the question. When something happens, the question needs to be, did I give you fair warning? And and I said, yes. And he said, so why did you ride it? And you know what? There is no answer for it. You know, he didn't even care about the car that I wrecked. He didn't even mention it. He was really upset with me because I didn't listen to him. I disobeyed. It destroyed his trust in me. He told me to go upstairs, and I was put in solitary confinement. And as he said to me, I guess I better go home. And this is the first time in my life I was ever grounded. And there wasn't a whole lot to do upstairs. But I made do. I watched TV and spent a lot of time being ignored by my parents. You know, this story goes on and on. I've made these mistakes over and over again as a kid. And I learned from them, but it took me a long time. It takes kids a long time to learn That authority always wins. My parents were experts at the silent treatment. And withholding love, too, when things went wrong. I used to think as I got older that they wrote the book on conditional love. Not unconditional love, conditional love. You were ignored. They didn't talk to you. They didn't love you. They didn't say anything to you. They didn't say it'll be all right. They didn't say one blessed word. They just made me pay the price with the silent treatment for what I did. Now, about two days later, I get a call from my grandmother, my father's mother. And I was so happy to hear from her. And she asked me if I'd come over to her house and help her clean up the backyard. 
Here we go again. And I figured it was my dad's mother. He'd want me to go. I didn't mention to her that I was grounded. I didn't ask for permission from my dad to go. I just left the house. Another mistake. I rode my bike over to her house. She was about 90 years old, half blind. She moved around pretty well, though. She fell down a long flight of stairs about a year earlier. Believe it or not, she dusted herself off. She just dusted herself off and basically walked away without a scratch. This was a tough old bird. Definitely from strong stock. Now I'm cleaning her yard with her. And I step on a rusty nail that was sticking out of an old picket that had fallen out of a fence and it punctured my foot. I checked my foot and found no blood. That's bad. I figured that was a good thing, but it wasn't. I rode my bike home and immediately started to have some trouble walking. I got to the point where I couldn't walk at all, but you know what? I didn't dare tell my parents because I was petrified of getting in trouble for leaving the house. I woke up the next morning and still didn't tell my parents. I sat around all day because my foot hurt too much. My mother came into my room very late at night and found me laying there crying and really scared, and she asked me what was wrong. And I told her I stepped on a nail at Graham's house the day before and that my foot really hurt. She pulled the covers off me, and there were red stripes going up my leg. I didn't know it, but I had blood poisoning. Now, what you have to understand here is that in a small town, everyone knew one another. And because my father owned the bar, everyone was kind of his drinking buddy even the doctor, good old Dr. Downs, the town doctor. Very early the next morning, and I'm talking like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the ne- that morning, my father went over to get him. The only problem was whether or not he would be sober or hungover, or maybe he would have a cast on his arm from falling down the stairs. But he was hungover. My father drove him over to the house, our house. Came up the back door with his black bag and with his son, a car mechanic. With that black bag, he looked like Jack the Ripper. He took one look at my foot and and said, first. This is the one line he said, first. Well, what did that mean? Well, that meant that he had to wash his hands in the kitchen sink using dish detergent. And he told my mother to lay me on the kitchen table on my back. And all I could think of was, for what? My mother was at the top of the table, my sister was at my side, and my sister said to me, Hey, Jim, remember Bonanza the other night when little Joe was shot with an arrow and Haas had to pull it out? 
And I said, yeah, what about it? She said, well, before Haas pulled the arrow out, he gave Joe a big stick to bite on. And she handed me a big cloth, dishcloth, and said to me, use this. I dropped it on the floor. My mother said to the doctor, what are you going to do? And he said, I'm going to cut open his foot. Now, I didn't notice any anesthesia. I didn't notice anything. But that didn't seem to upset her at all. He pulled out a spray can and started to spray my foot. And my mother said, what's that? And, she, and he said, ethyl chloride. And my mind flashed back to all the times I watched the Mets on TV. And I remember how when one of the players was hit with the ball, the team trainer would come out and spray the player with ethyl chloride to hold down the swelling. It didn't take the pain away. It just held down the swelling and allowed the guy to stay in the game. I thought, ethyl chloride? It's not going to help. He's going to cut open my foot? And this is the best he's got? He pulled the scalpel out of his bag. And he held it like he was getting ready to cut into a piece of steak. And started to dig that thing into the ball of my foot. And I started to scream like hell. My mom picked up the dishcloth off the floor and shoved it into my mouth to hold down the noise until... Dr. Mengel, or Dr. Downs was done. He wrapped my foot with gauze bandages, collect $10, and left. You know, I still don't know why he brought his son. The guy was a car mechanic. I forgot to mention the bike problem that I had was put on the back burner for a while. The bottom line was my father took all the money I earned working for my grandmother to help pay for the damage that I had done to the car. It wasn't a bad lesson. And something that needs to happen more today if there's any hope for our children to respond correctly to authority. Now, again, for some reason, kids fight us. And we have to be ready for that battle. We have to be ready. We have to be ready with consequences. We have to be ready with, um, uh, be ready to say no when we have to say no. We have to be ready for bullies. We have to be ready for victims. We have to be ready for them all. But if they want to fight authority, we have to be sure that we give them a fight, and that we win. Because if we don't, if we don't, I learned, I'm 65 years old, I'm telling this story like it happened yesterday. If they don't learn, if they don't learn, what will happen is they will end up going through life believing that their boss is out for them, the cops are out to get them, Anyone that gives them a hard time who's in charge is out to get them. This is what we have to be ready for. Kids are going to fight us. Kids are going to do battle with us. And we have to be ready and stand and go toe-to-toe with them if, in fact, we want to help them have a successful life moving forward. 
You know, John Mellencamp's lyrics in the song, uh, the authority song could never be truer. The chorus goes like this. I fight authority and authority always wins. Well, I fought it. I didn't listen. I nearly lost my leg, maybe my life. The bottom line is we have to help our kids learn that authority is there for protective reasons, and we have to listen, and they have to listen if, in fact, they want to move forward and be successful in life. My name is Jim Burns. You've been listening to Anti-Bullying 101. Please go to my website, www.bullyproofclassroom.com. You'll find a ton of stuff there. Also, please donate to the cause. Please donate. These, these podcasts take production time. They take, they take material. They take all types of hardware to do. Please donate. And we are desperate right now, and I want to keep this thing going more than I do. Two days a week at least. This is Monday. I think I did one last Monday. So please donate. Please go to the store at bullyproofclassroom.com. Look at all the stuff that's there. If you have an opportunity, please spend a few dollars. Right now, we are running the anti-bullying boot camp. And this is five courses that normally all five of them would sell for $470. We're giving them, we're selling them right now for $250, almost a 50% discount. Take a look at it. It's on the website. It's under it's under uh, anti-bullying boot camp. It's one of the products in the store. Take the time to take a look. Also, you'll see a spot on the website to donate. It's called Become a Patron. Donate. I will have links to all of this. Links to all of this in the episode description. So please take advantage of it. Once again... My name is Jim Burns. Thank you for listening to Anti-Bullying 101.